I have the best last name ever. I don't have pride problems in many areas, but I do when it comes to my last name because I think I have the best last name ever. And it's always been the last name, best last name ever, but it's especially good right now. You see, when I was growing up, it was just helpful for talking on the phone because you call the phone, you're dealing with customer service, you say, what's your name? I say, Scott Savage. And they go, can you spell that? I go, wild, angry savages. They go, okay, cool, got it. You know, like, made phone calls really, really easy. But then about five or six years ago, um, I had to call my parents and say, mom and dad, do you know that our last name is a buzzword now? And they go, what? And I go, yeah, like, savage, it, it means cool. It's kind of a new version of awesome. It's just an amazing, amazing word. And then I started going shopping in stores, and I started finding clothing with my name on it. I mean, it was just amazing. <laughs> And if your last name was as cool as Savage, you'd buy it for clothing too. And so I was walking around yesterday at Taylor Hicks. People go, you, you're wearing a hoodie that has your name on it? I go, yeah, because it's the best last name ever. I just love, I love my last name. I think it's awesome. And, and my last name is actually part of my identity. It's part of how I see myself and my role in my work in the world. And it even is summed up in one of the best movies ever made called Braveheart. There's this amazing scene in the movie Braveheart where William Wallace says, I may be a savage, but I tell no lies. I just love that sentiment. And so last week, my son told a lie, and I said, Wesley, we are savages. We tell no lies. This is who we are. This is part of our identity. And so as part of that, I feel like my role and responsibility every week is to tell you the truth. To not hold back, to not sugarcoat things, but to be honest and transparent. And one of the things I have to tell you today is in addition to loving my name, in addition to being a savage who tells no lies, I hate cliches. Like I have a like physical allergy to cliches. And sometimes in the church, we get really good at trafficking in cliches. I brought five of the worst cliches in the world with me this morning. Like this one. Everything happens for a reason, which is basically an invitation for somebody to punch you in the face for being insensitive while they're hurting. The next one is, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. This one, give 110%. You can't actually do that. You know, you can't. You only have 100. You can't give 110%. No matter what your coach tells you at halftime. Literally, and this is one of my big pet thieves, it is pronounced literally. I know Parks and Rec says literally, and if your friend says literally, it's not. It's literally. Thank you very much. And then my last one, with all due respect. And so when somebody tells you with all due respect, just sit down because they're about to say something mean. You know, it's always a precursor to something that doesn't actually have any respect. And so these are some cliches that we use. And there's so many of them. I did research this week on cliches for about a half an hour. I read just tons of cliches. And I think one of the reasons that cliches stick around, I think one of the reasons that all of us have cliches that are a part of our vocabulary, I think one of the reasons that these last throughout the years is that they spread and endure because they're simple and they're clear. And we live in a world that is often anything but simple. And we live in a world that is often anything but clear. And so when you have something that you can grab onto that simplifies things, when you have something you can grab onto that clarifies things, even if it's annoying or frustrating or a little bit untrue, it helps you figure things out. And so in this message today, I want to warn you that you might be thinking, Scott, that sounds a little bit like a cliche. That sounds a little bit simple or a little bit too clear or maybe 
It can't be that simple. And as somebody who hates cliches, I'm telling you that this may sound like a cliche, but it's not. This may sound like it's just too good to be true, but it's not. You see, we're in a series about money. And we're talking about money from a different perspective. We're calling this series a different kind of money series. And the first week, we talked about the fact that real change begins when we invite God into the issues behind our money issues. That many of our issues with money aren't dollars and cents, but they're issues like trust and fear. They're issues like insecurity. They're issues like, can I actually be honest with this person that I'm working through this money issue with? And so many of our fights about money are not really about money. They're about something deeper. And then last week, we talked about the things that we believe about money. We said that we have an enemy who uses money to talk to us, and he lies. We discussed these four lies that, that, that we'll be happier if we have more money, that we'll feel more secure if we have more money, that God's holding out on us somehow when it comes to money, and that we are our money mistakes. And so that's kind of been the first weeks of this series, a little bit of kind of below the surface when it comes to money, these kind of heart issues. And today we're kind of moving above the surface, and what I want to talk to you about are what I'm calling God's money basics. And again, you may think that what I'm going to share with you today sounds a little bit like a cliché. And I even had to get a little bit of free counseling from my wife on Tuesday, because I was talking to her, and I said, honey... This feels a little bit cliche, what I'm going to talk about. And she said, well, it's just basic, right? And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, we all need to hear the basics. I said, well, there's some people in the room, they're just going to go, Scott, this is just whatever. I've heard this before. And she said, well, maybe that's because their problem is pride. And so I'm not saying it. My wife did. If you have a problem with today, it's (laughs) don't blame me. It was my wife. But let's be honest. There are some of us that think that we're too good for the basics. And the thing is, every fall, I bagged on football coaches earlier, I'll come back to them. Every fall, every football team goes back to the basics. Every school year, every teacher begins with the basics. We come back to them because we all have a tendency to forget. And if we ever lose sight of the basics, it doesn't matter how complicated we can make things. So today, I want to talk about God's money basics with you. And here's the big idea for today. There's a copy of this in your handout if you want to write it down. God's plan for our money is simple, but never easy. God's plan for our money, and there's a plan in the Bible that he gives us, is simple, but it is never easy. And many times when people tell us things that are simple, they go, oh, you're just saying it's easy. No, I'm saying it is simple. Simple does not equal easy. Some of the simplest things in the world are the hardest thing to do. Our faith is summed up in two phrases. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is simple. But have you ever tried to love people? (laughs) Not easy. God's plan for our money is simple, but never easy. And so today we're going to look at a a passage in the Bible that really sums up God's plan for our money well. It's in the book of Matthew chapter 25. So if you have a Bible, hit the middle, that's Psalms, go towards the back, you'll hit the New Testament, you'll hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew 25. Jesus is teaching his disciples in this section about the fact that life is finite. Life is not uh, always going to last here. We will all die, and we'll be held accountable for how we live. And he's trying to impress on his disciples the reality of the finite nature of their lives. 
to give them urgency and to show them what truly matters. Typically, I read from the English Standard Version of the Bible. There's lots of translations. I use that one the most. But there's a word in there that I, I'm really not a fan of how they translate it. And so I'm going to talk to you about that when we're done. But to help you not trip up over it, I'm going to read from the NIV today. So if you have a digital Bible, you can click over to that in your options. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. This is Jesus talking again. He says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To the one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work, and he gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two bags more. But the man who received one bag, he went off, dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. A long time later, the master of those servants returned, and he settled accounts with them. And the man who received five bags of gold brought the other five and said, Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. The master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came, and he said, Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And the master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. But the man who received one bag of gold came, and he said, Master, I knew that you're a hard man. You're harvesting where you have not sown, and you're gathering where you haven't scattered seed. Again, this is an agrarian agricultural society. He says, so I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And the master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags already. For the one who has will be given more and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. And then he closes by saying, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a a sobering story. And many of you, if you grew up in church, you grew up hearing this parable, this story, called the parable of the talents. That's how it's described in the English Standard Version that I read typically from on Sundays. Because the word talent in that day was a description for a volume of money. Several thousand dollars. And so really it's the parable of the several thousand dollars. But over the years, as cultures have changed, we use the word talent very differently. You don't say, man, I brought home lots of talents today from work. Or 10,000 talents just hit my bank account, you know? You say dollars. No, we use the word talent to describe our gifts, or our abilities, or our skills. And in this parable, when we use the word talent, sometimes we get it mixed up. And we begin to think that because we have more talent, that's why we have more money. And if we don't have enough money, well, maybe I don't have enough talent. Maybe God didn't give me talent, therefore he's not giving me money. And we go down some crazy and unhealthy routes with that word. So that's why I read it from the NIV where it says he was given bags of gold. Or another translation says bags of silver. 
Because this parable and this story is not about God only gives money to those who are super talented and those who feel untalented lack money. That isn't what this text is saying. This text really teaches us three components of God's money basics. And they're simple, but they're not easy. And the first one is this, that God owns everything. This parable introduces this idea that everything that we see originally came from God. In Psalm 24.1, this same idea is reiterated where the, the psalmist says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything you saw yesterday that you enjoyed living in Prescott, trees and mountains and cleaner air, all of that didn't have its origin in the Chamber of Commerce. It had its origin in God. And the scriptures tell us that we are all like these servants and what we have in our hands didn't come from us. It came from God. And God owns all of it. And ultimately, at the end of our lives, it's going to be his still. And during our lives, we've been given it for a short season. I love how the theologian Abraham Kuyper says that he says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's no area of the world or any piece of our existence that God doesn't say, that's mine. And what's so funny is if you have had a child, that you're around the child, you know that children learn mama and papa. Hopefully, papa than mama, if you're being, you know, from my perspective. And then they learn yes and no. And typically, in the first five words a child learns is a simple four-letter word beginning with M. And it's the word mine. It's funny. It's a longer word than yes and no. But sometimes they learn it before they even know yes and no. It's the word mine. And in the story, that's exactly what the third servant does. Often he gets you know, hit on because he's the one who didn't invest his money. But this week as I was studying this passage, because I've read this passage like 25 times, I found something new. Do you know why the man buried it in the ground? Because if he put it in the bank, the bank would know that it belonged to the owner. If he put it in the ground and the owner never came back, he could take it as his own. It's an act of denying that the owner was the owner of that money, and he was believing and hoping the owner wouldn't come back so he could spend it on whatever he wanted. The first two invested it in the bank, said, hey, this is my owner's money. I'm investing it. If he comes back, it'll be his money. By burying it in the ground, the third man is saying, no, I want it to be mine. And this is the challenge that many of us face. The money and the resources and the life you've been entrusted with is God's. He owns it. But will you live as if that is true or will you live hoping just maybe that it can be yours instead? The first truth is that God owns everything. The second truth is that we are stewards. Stewards. It's not a word that you typically see and so I want to define it for you. The word steward can be defined a couple ways. It's one employed in a large household or estate to manage domestic concerns. So if you watch Downton Abbey, there's a couple stewards in that story. 
And then a steward is also one who directs the affairs of another. It's somebody who has been put in charge of somebody else's stuff or somebody else's affairs or somebody else's life. They've been deputized or handed off responsibility. It isn't their affairs. It isn't their household. It isn't their estate. But they're employed or directed to be in charge and responsible for that. And in 1 Corinthians 4, we're reminded that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Like the three men in this story, all of us are stewards of our lives. And stewardship, I have to apologize for this, has in this era of church been co-opted to mean tithing. Which is why many of you, when you saw that I was doing a series on money, you were skeptical for the first couple weeks because whenever you hear a sermon about money, you instantly translate, the pastor's coming for more of my money for the church. I'll treat the awkward silence as confirmation that I'm accurate about that. (laughs) And sadly, stewardship is a biblical term that is so much bigger than tithing. John Putnam, who's our speaker next weekend, here's how he defines stewardship. He says, stewardship is everything we do after we say yes to Jesus. So when you give your life to following Jesus and you're baptized, every decision you make after that in your life, everything you do is stewardship. Everything. Stewardship doesn't just concern the percentage of your dollars that you invest in a local church. Stewardship concerns all of your money. It actually also concerns all of your gifts and your talents and your abilities and your skills and your job. It also concerns all of the relationships and the people in your life. It actually also concerns the time that you have on this planet and what you do with it. And it also concerns creation. And I'm just going to say this, and I'm not being political. But the people who should be most passionate about the creation that we experience are Christians because we're the ones that God gave charge to in Genesis 2 where he said, have dominion over the earth. He basically gave charge for us to steward the earth. And if you read the Bible from Genesis 2 to the end, there's no place where he takes it back. So it's a very sad day when the quote, the liberals and those who don't believe in the Bible get to care about stewardship, but Christians don't. Because stewardship concerns everything that exists. And God calls us to be stewards, to take care of what is his for a season, which leads us to number three. That God has a plan, and we're accountable for our response to that plan. So God's the owner of everything. We're stewards, and God has a plan. And like these guys in the story, we're held accountable for our response to that plan. The ones who were faithful, they got more. The one who wanted to spend it on himself, he had that taken away. All of that is accountability. In Proverbs chapter chapter 3 verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, God, and he will make straight your paths. Even in the story in Matthew 25, we read Jesus speaking as the, the master saying, Take the bag of gold from him, the one who was spending on himself, and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they'll have an abundance. And whoever doesn't have, even what they have will be taken from him. There's this idea that the plan God has isn't just a, hey, do whatever you like, and it'll work out in the end. It's that God has a plan, and we get to respond to that plan, and we're held accountable for our response. And here's the funny thing. 
Most of the time, when I talk to people at church about money, it's when they're in crisis. Most of the time, when we pray about money, it's when we don't have enough. Most of the time, when we're open to learning about money, it's when we're in bad financial straits. And here's an interesting observation from Pastor Jarrett Stevens. He says, we often go to God first with our financial problems, but last with our financial plans. We often go to God first with our financial problems. God, I don't have enough money. I'm in really bad straits. I need you to come through and deliver for me. But when it comes to making a plan, we often make the plan and say, God, would you bless it? And I'm not saying it's bad that we go to God first with our financial problems. He's the one who owns it all. But it should be telling that if we're only going to him first for that and we're going to him last with our plans, maybe we could prevent some of that run to God with our problems if we started with him when it came to our plan. All throughout this series, we've been repeating a verse to you, and it's John 10.10. The words of Jesus who said, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You say, Scott, what does it look like for stealing and killing and destroying? This is what most of our lives look like financially. Most of our lives look like fighting and anxiety when it comes to money. Most of your marriages, when money comes up, it typically is a trigger for anxiety and a trigger for a fight. And that's often because we're trying to play life and use our money according to our plan. And we're only running to God when we end up in problems. And God said to us through Jesus, I didn't come to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Now, he's not saying he wants everyone to be rich. And if you give to the church, you'll be rich. We're not one of those churches. But what he is saying is that I actually created this life for you, and I hope that you would enjoy it. And I came that I would be able to show you how. And so today what I want to do is I want to share with you a simple picture that I was given when I was young. And it's simple. And for some of you, it's exactly what you need right now. And for others of you, it's it's what might actually be a building block for your future. But I think it might be helpful. And it really revolves around three words. Eternity, tomorrow, and today. Eternity, tomorrow, and today. When I was just getting started in my adult life... I had a, uh, a man who told me, Scott, when you think about your money, you need to think about eternity, you need to think about tomorrow, and you need to think about today. And he says, Scott, you're going to be tempted to only think about today with your money. He goes, because you're young. But one day you won't be young. And you'll wish that you had thought about that day now. It was really good advice because it was right. I was 21. I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to be 21 forever. Um, and then I realized I'm not. Um, and so he said, Scott, think about eternity, tomorrow, and today. And this idea is actually rooted in the scriptures. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, eternal treasures, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Later on in Proverbs, it says, This story is really funny. If you've ever learned from an ant before, you're going to change how you see them in your garden now. Go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. 
And then in First Timothy we read, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of this world. Really important reminder. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul goes on to say, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And so that day, that that man taught me, he said, Scott, the Bible teaches us to not just think about today, but like the ant to consider tomorrow, and then to recognize that if we just spend our lives on this place, this earth, it won't outlast us. We need to invest in eternal things. And so what he did is he gave me a map to begin considering these concepts. He says, Scott, I take my money and I, I put 10% on eternity. That, that idea biblically is called a tithe. It was given in the Old Testament off of the first fruits of the harvest that gain, came in. And this man said, I give 10% to my local church. Now, there's lots of different teaching around tithing. It has been used as a um, weapon to beat people up. And it's also used as a place of pride where people say, hey, if I give 10% to the church, I can do what I want with everything else. And all of those ideas can be destructive and harmful. I'm not here to legislate for the tithe, but what I am here to tell you is that if you're not storing up treasures in heaven, you're missing the point. Plus, I think that God, when he calls us to give, is not going to stop with 10%. I think he's going to call us to give more. Then that man said, I want you to think about Scott investing 10% in tomorrow. He goes, because one day you're going to wish that you had saved, and the earlier you start, the better it gets. And then he said, Scott, that leaves 80% for you to spend on today. He goes, and Scott, if you, if you do this consistently and regularly, he goes, you're going to come to my grave one day and thank me. And to be honest, I haven't always done this well. I haven't always practiced these principles well. Even in preparing for this message, I'm recognizing places where I could adjust. And some of you are in a season where you didn't do 10% when you were in your early 20s. And if you only save 10% now, you're really going to have a hard time in a few years. And some of you, you go, man, I can't imagine giving 10% of my money away. You go, I need a lot more than 80% to live on. Well, here's a thought. If your boss came to you this week... And he said, hey, just this is really sad, but we're doing really bad as a company, and we're going to need to cut your salary 20%. Could you figure out how to live on 80%? You, you might have to. This idea is instead of waiting for that to happen with your boss, it's choosing it. It's choosing to live on less than you make so that one day you can have a different kind of financial life. This was something that happened to me. I had an experience that caused me to reframe my money. I went to work for a church right out of college. And I wasn't making a whole lot of money. I was a part-time intern. And uh, I was so excited the day they came and said, Scott, we're going to give everybody a raise. And I was like, seriously? We're all going to get more money? This is awesome. Now, when you're not making much at a church, 3% is awesome. And so we all got raises. And it was the first time in our church that people had get, gotten raises in years, close to a decade. And so for three months, we were so excited to have 3%. The only problem was, is that raise came in October of 2008. So in January of 2008, they came back and said, hey, we're kind of projecting some major challenges because 15% of our church is unemployed, and even more of them are underwater in their home. And so we're going to have to cut your salaries all 7.5%. 
So I netted a four and a half percent, if you can do math, um, which when you're not making a lot is a big deal. My wife and I had gotten married, and I've shared this before. When we got married, we were $210,000 in debt without a mortgage. And so we decided then when that, when that cut happened that we had to get serious about paying off our debt. And so I got two extra jobs. When I wrecked my car that year, we put all of that money towards our debt. And we began to pay over $1,000 a month to Visa and MasterCard to get out of credit card debt. And what happened during that is that nearly every Friday, my wife would get bored on her lunch break and start crunching numbers, and I would get an email. I hated those emails. Those emails typically included all the things that I loved that I couldn't love anymore. Those things included this list. No coffee runs, no foodie date nights. No lunches out, and I had to give up my Crackberry, which if those of you don't remember the Blackberry, it was the best phone ever invented, and it has the best little, it's called Blackberry Messenger. I still miss that to this day. And so I gave up all these things and more. And for a season, I was like, is there anything else left to give up? An email come in and go, I have nothing else to give up, honey. There's nothing else you can take away from me, you know? But to be honest, if she hadn't sent me those emails, we would still be in that problem today. And in two years, we paid off $25,000 in credit card debt. And over the last 10 years, that number that was 210000 is down now into the low 80s. And if we had spent everything we did on today, we wouldn't be here today. And what I learned in that season is this, that I didn't know I could do that. And some of you, you are capable of more financially than you could ever imagine. You're capable of living on less than you make, even though you've never done that before. You're capable of saving more than you've ever saved before. You're capable of giving more away than you've ever given away before. But you won't discover those things until you get a vision and a picture of what could be with your finances. A vision and a picture that's bigger than where you are today. God's plan for money is simple, but it is not easy. And I'm telling you from experience. Like last week with shoots and ladders, you're going to watch your friends go on vacations while you don't. You're going to watch your friends upgrade while you continue to use what you have. You're going to watch your friends spend money on themselves while you're giving away to other people. You're going to watch your friends spend money today while you save money for tomorrow. But as someone once said, if you want to live like no one else tomorrow, you have to live like no one else today. And so I have a couple next steps to help you take this process forward. The first one is this. Quit claiming ownership and start embracing stewardship. Quit claiming ownership and start embracing stewardship. In your bulletin, some of you might have found this. There's a little item in there. And at the top of it, it says quit claim deed. And this week, I would encourage you to fill this out. It says, this quick claim deed made on the blank day of the blank month of the blank year from, that would be you, to God, the owner of everything. I hereby transfer to God the ownership of the following possessions. And all those things that you struggle to say mine with, I want you to write down those names. I want you to show this to somebody in your life that you trust. And I want you to sign it and them to sign it. Because this is the day that you begin quit claiming ownership and the day that you begin embracing stewardship. This is the day when you surrender that you don't actually own that, but God has given it to you for a season. You go, Scott, this is really corny. Yeah, sometimes you need corny. 
Because our hearts want to say mine for the things that aren't. Number two, I'd encourage you to identify your next financial step. What is God speaking to your heart about? And not the next eight or ten things you need to do. Just pick one. I once climbed the Great Wall of China. It's over a thousand steps. And I wasn't in good shape. And if I had focused on steps 900 through 1,000, I would not have finished. Focus on the next step. Are you spending more money than you have? Well, choose to freeze your credit cards or cut them up and begin living on what you make. You say, Scott, I'm not giving anything. We'll start with 1% or 2%. You say, I'm not saving anything. We'll start with $20 a week. Figure out where you can start and pick a next step. Maybe it's next weekend that you go out in the lobby and you sign up for the date night with John Putnam and learn about the things that are influencing your money you have no idea about. But pick a next step and start with that one. And once you nail that one, move on to the next one. And then finally, anticipate the struggle. Anticipate the struggle. Along with my last name being a buzzword, there's a buzz phrase that says the struggle is real. And it applies here. The reason we don't talk about this very often is because it's hard. And the reason it makes us uncomfortable is because it's hard. And that's because we're talking about things that are bigger than money. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're not just talking about financial decisions here. We're talking about spiritual decisions. Because every financial decision is a spiritual decision. And we're not just in a financial battle. We're in a spiritual one. So anticipate the struggle. This is simple, but it's not easy. And you are capable with God's power with more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.